This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill är så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, yes! Welcome everybody to another episode of Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson and their keeper pools. I am your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and I have a really fun show to bring to you today. I was joined by Alan Mitchell, a.k.a. Low Tide, to talk about the Edmonton Oilers. We had a really fun chat talking through the Oilers roster. I promise you are going to like this episode. Before we get into it, though, of course, let me mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com, which is the top fantasy hockey website in the world. I use Frozen Tools to prep all of these interviews because it's such a convenient place to see all of the stats and you see all these cool stats that you just like don't you you you'd think you would see them everywhere else but you just don't like percentage of power play time that a player had or like just being able to sort by both 82 game pace and season pace like it's just a really great site so that's frozen tools and then of course dabber hockey itself is just a place where you have really great articles from some really smart writers i really love that site and we're so proud to be presented by them so again that's dabber hockey Com. But okay, with that, let's cut to my interview with Alan Mitchell about the Edmonton Oilers. Here it is. Okay, everybody, I'm really excited to bring you this next Beat Writer interview. We've got a really good one for you. Longtime chronicler of the Edmonton Oilers is on the call with me. Welcome to the show, Alan Mitchell, a.k.a. Low Tide. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this for some time, and uh, I can't wait for you. You say you got lots of great questions. I can't wait to not answer them properly. <laughs> I have a feeling that you're going to do pretty well. You've been writing about the Oilers for a while, and I am. Like, <laughs> like I told you off the air, I have a lot of questions. This is a very interesting team. Like Your athletic profile mentions that you've chronicled the Oilers for more than a decade, so it must be exciting for you to see what's going on with Edmonton since you've pretty much been chronicling a decade of disappointment since aside from that quarterfinal appearance, in 2016-17 the Oilers have missed the playoffs every single year since they lost to Carolina in the cup finals back in 2006 but this year 2019-20 it was looking like it was going to be a big one for the team they came out hot for new coach Dave Tippett they won their first five games and by the time of the pause they sat second in the Pacific and looked like a solid bet to get into the playoffs and potentially do some damage and what's so interesting to me about this turnaround is aside from the coaching change from Hitchcock to Tippett I'm not really seeing like that many roster differences between the second to last in the West squad of 2018-19 and this year's fourth ranked in the West squad like yeah they switched uh, Cam Talbot for Mike Smith and Kyler Yamamoto had that breakout at the end but like is there anything in particular that you could point to in order to pinpoint why the Oilers were such an improved team this past season well I think that that you know it's it's funny because I I I think that that Ken Holland had a really good summer, even though it wasn't an expensive summer. He didn't spend a lot of money. Uh, but, but Riley Sheehan has been one of the contributors on the penalty kill. 
they they brought in Mike Smith, who statistically has not been, uh, you know, he's been well below average. Uh, but but I can tell you, in watching the games, he's won some really uh, big games for the for the Oilers. You, you mentioned they go they went five and zero to start the year. They lost in Chicago uh, on Thanksgiving weekend. And he was brilliant in that game. They lost, but he was brilliant anyway. They, the, 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 the bets made by Holland in the offseason were, I think, good, not great, but they all worked out, or most did, uh, except for Granlund. But the key, I think, to the season in a lot of ways uh, is, and I'll, I'll include I'll say Dave Tippett, but I'll include his whole pitching staff because I'm not certain, you know, who to give credit to the penalty kill or the power play or whatever the case may be. But but he has handled this team really well. And there's two things I think that made them more successful than the Shirelli McClellan combination. One, they seem to be on the same page just about everything. There was always a, you know, the Shirelli traded for Griffin Reinhardt and then Reinhardt didn't make the team. And there was an issue there. They drafted Jessup Pogliarvi and Shirelli said, Oh, he's ready. Everybody who played for Tippett this past season was contributing. There was no struggling young player trying to get him some ice time and, you know, kind of dying on the vine. Everybody contributed. And, and even a player who did struggle like Jujar Carr at five on five, he was brilliant on the penalty kill. So uh, it, it, it felt to me like if, if, if it wasn't working out a la Joel Pearson, uh, who wasn't necessarily uh, doing as well as you would have liked early on, they would pull the plug and move on from that player. Thomas Churcho would be another one. And they replaced them with somebody else and then quickly either got up to level with that player or they would tweak it again. And, the penalty kill and the power play were made a huge difference for this team. And part of the penalty killing was the goaltending. Koskinen played well. But I think the deployment of the team was exemplary by Tippett. And then I'll also say they, they reached a point in the year exactly the same thing that happened to Peter Shirelli. Shirelli traded for two defensemen on one day on a Sunday uh, in 2018-19. And that didn't work. A little later, a couple of weeks later in, in 2019-20, uh, Ken Holland uh, put a couple of veterans on waivers, Brandon Manning uh, and Marcus Granlund, and he recalled William Lageson and uh, Connor Yamamoto. And and th- that in and of itself didn't change the world. But the fact that, that Tippett, and I, again, I'll give him credit, he, he, may, he wanted to get Leon Dreisaitl on a, a line at center, and he used Nuge as the left winger and Yamamoto uh, on the right side, and that ignited the team. Once they started going, uh, a little known secret about Connor McDavid, you can play almost anybody with them, and they're going to score. Yeah. But that line playing well, they just ravaged teams because teams couldn't match up with them. They, McDavid is still the guy you've got to harness, and so the second line was was getting the clean air and the cherry minutes, and they destroyed teams in January. Uh, and in fact, they did right through really until the end of the year. I think it was they scored twenty three to eight at five on five. So, I, I for me the key elements would be I think Holland had a a, a solid off season tweaking. Uh, he didn't make many missteps. He didn't spend a lot of money. Uh, even the bets that he made that I questioned, like Mike Smith, worked out. And then I think his his best move was hiring Dave Tippett, who, quite frankly, uh, I mean, he, he, he made the previous several coaches of this team look foolish with, with some really astute moves. He seemed to really have a feel for the team. And, and again, he wasn't trying to develop rookies in the NHL, and that was another key as well. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And good for the Oilers for getting Dave Tippett. And I'm glad that it's working out there. And it's interesting how you bring up this Yamamoto call up. I feel like that's going to be the catalyst for like all of my questions coming up. It seemed like so much changed for the team once Yamamoto came up. But first, like, what do you think about this team now in terms of the rest of this season? Like if this play in series actually happens and moving forward, like, do you think they are an actual legitimate contender? Like as soon as now, like if this playoffs actually happens, like I remember uh, discussing on our patron Facebook group back in February, you know, I think the Oilers had blown out some team like eight to three or something. It was like, is this team like actually, are the Oilers actually this good? They're not only a playoff team, but potentially a cup contender. And of course, the big reason why maybe not was like, oh, they're not, they don't have a lot of depth. But the way that McDavid and Dry will play, and now you're saying like the smart coaching, like I'm curious to know, like, how high do you think the upside of this team is right now? Well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to give you an answer and then I'm going to give you a, a, like a, a caveat. And the, <laughs> a lot went really well for the Oilers. Like opening night, Adam Larson goes down. But Ethan Bear plays brilliantly, and and he and Darnell Nurse formed what was for for much of the season the top pairing. They played against the the toughest opposition, and that's luck. I mean, you know, as 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 much as fans might like Ethan Bear, he played wildly better than anybody would have expected, and you hope that that continues, but there are no guarantees. His established level of ability isn't isn't where it was this year. You have to do it a couple of more years to, to be able and stay healthy to be able to count on them. But the, if Ethan Bear is real and Kyler Yamamoto is real, then I think the Oilers are a, a third line center, uh, another scoring winger, be he left or right winger, uh, away. And maybe they acquired that in Athens CU. Uh, and then they've got to, you know, I, I think that they'll have to shore up the other half of the, the goaltending. I think Koskinen was fine. In fact, I think he was more than fine. I think he had a good year this year. But they're going to have to get better in goal up and down the line. But yeah, I mean, if you're asking me if they can win the Stanley Cup, I don't think they're quite there yet uh, because they, they do have some areas that they need uh, to, to, to improve a little bit. But I think that Holland and Tippett have, have done a, an amazing job of bringing clarity and balance to the roster in what is less, I guess it's a little over a year now, but what was less than a year when the season ended, they, they've done really good work. Their, their third and fourth lines basically are, are two fourth lines of penalty killers. And uh, that worked out really well. Uh, Riley Shahan and Josh Archibald are a nice combination. Several wingers from Joachim Nigard and Tyler Benson played well with them. So I think they've got kind of a makeshift line, no matter who they put on, as long as they have Shahan and Archibald. And now we'll see. We'll see if Kara is going to center a line. We'll see if they are, are you know, what they're going to do with Gaetan Haas, who is a, I mean, all he does is draw penalties. The guy is really good at it. Um, they're, they're a very interesting team, and they got interesting when Holland and Tippett arrived because they didn't, they didn't do what the orders have always done, which is plug in, the biggest phenoms and wait for them to fail or succeed. They, they went the opposite. They hired a bunch of guys at uh, 1.1 million, like Archibald and Shan and, and asked them to do the, a lot of the hard work. And they did. And now you can sort of see what elements have to be replaced or added to, but it's a, it's a much more logical way of going about building a team that Ken Holland brought. And, and I think he should, and, and Tippett should get a lot of the credit. They, they had a great year, both of them. 
Yeah, so it must be so exciting for Oilers fans because, like I said, it's been a while since this team's been a contender. And now, like you say, maybe just a piece or two away from really making something happen. And you brought up some guys like Bear and Athanasiu and Koskinen. I definitely want to get to all of them. But of course, any conversation about the Oilers has got to start with their two league leading superstars and Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisidel. Both were pacing for career highs in points. McDavid once again was putting up a 120 point, 82 game pace. And Dreisidel exploded this year. 43 goals and an Art Ross winning 110 points in 71 games. That would have been a 50 goal, 127 point pace if they played all 82 games. And like, of course, we've known McDavid was destined to be tops in the league since even like before he was drafted. But I don't think anyone could have predicted this season that Dreisaitl just put up. Like, sure, he had 50 goals and 105 points in 2018-19. But in our analysis, I remember we were compelled to point out that he did that with a very unsustainable looking 21.6 shooting percentage. And we thought like Dreisaitl would be hard pressed to repeat that production, let alone build on on it but of course we were proven wrong which makes me a little nervous to once again kind of ask the same questions I was asking last summer is Leon Dreisaitl really this good like do you think he'll continue to join McDavid at the top of league scoring for the foreseeable future well I'll I'll tell you I learned uh, a lot about any kind of sport but about baseball from Bill James and a lot of it does apply to hockey and Bill James always said uh you, you can't um you can't assume a player has an established level of of ability until he does it two or three years in a row. And, you know, Leon scored 50 goals two years ago. He was on pace to score about that and many more points this past year. So I, I, I mean, I don't know that he has another gear. I think he may be peaking now. This We're looking at the peak of Leon's career, but I'm not absolutely certain. And the things that he does, you know, He's a funny player. I remember I went back and I looked at his his uh, draft s- uh, scouting reports, and a lot of them had well, he does this well, but there's this. So it would be you know he's a great passer, but he can be sluggish at the end of shifts because they're too long, or um, he shoots the puck with authority, but he's often looking uh, to make that perfect pass, and and. If you look at the, the scouting report, almost all of the, the bumps or the wrinkles or the things that were on the downbeat, he, he has ironed out of his game. You know, he's a better skater than he was. Uh, he, he's, he's stronger than he was, even though he was strong back then. So he can hold off an, op, uh, an opponent. Uh, even though he still passes very well, uh, Leon shoots the puck a lot. And, and his shooting percentage is, is still really high. But part of that is that that he's you know he shoots from good places like he doesn't cheat himself. If he's got a good situation, he'll hammer it. And and that's the other thing is he's so damn strong that that I you know there's a there's a thing that happens in hockey is if if a if a player can shoot the puck hard enough, then it either hits the goalie or it doesn't. But the goalie's not going to stop it. And and on the power play, what Leon does is he he parks that butt of his on the on the right side and he's waiting for a pass from probably McDavid and it's off his stick in a heartbeat and and really it's if it hits something it's not going in the net but if if he you know it, it, the goalie's not going to be able to react to it and that's what one of the reasons why I think his his uh, shooting percentage is so high so I'll, I'll say about him I'll say I think he's close to peak level but I you know I've bet against him in the past and he's made me look foolish. So all bets are off there. He's a great player. 
it's pretty wild because yeah i wasn't even asking if he could like go to another level i was just wondering if he could even stay at this level but if you're saying who knows he could even do better like what an amazing pick it's so funny the oilers had all these first overall picks and then it turns out that this third overall pick might be one of the best ones after mcdavid of course and like mcdavid is also very interesting like like you said like this year sort of started and ended very differently in terms of the lines because at first Drysaddle and McDavid were playing together. Zach Cassian was that lucky son of a gun playing right wing with them, which led to him having a career year based on his first half numbers. But then at the start of 2020, Kyler Yamamoto gets called up. Things get shaken up with Drysaddle moving to center the second line with Yamamoto and Ryan Nugent Hopkins, leaving McDavid to kind of, I guess, like fend for himself. Kind of like you said, he could play with anyone, right? So he was playing with guys like Cassian, Josh Archibald, James Neal. Later on, he played with deadline acquisitions and Drace Athanasiu and Tyler Ennis for a little bit. Uh, what do you think triggered this? Uh, coaching decision to split up McDavid and Dreisaitl around January. And also, I guess I'm curious to know, do you expect that to hold going into next year? Like, do you think the plan is to keep McDavid and Dreisaitl on separate lines? Well, here, here's what I think. I, I think that that Dreisaitl had a, a real struggle in December. Uh, the whole team did, and he, he was uh, uh, bad luck shooting percentage, bad save percentage in front of him. It was not a strong month for Leon Dreisaitl and his line. And I think they reached a point at, at, you know, kind of a crossroads. They'd, they'd started well and then they had slumbered a little bit and they were, you know, kind of a porridge team. They weren't great. They weren't bad, but it wasn't obvious they were going to make the playoffs. So I think what, what Tippett did, and again, I think he's had a hell of a year. I think he said, you know, what do I want? I want McDavid in the middle uh, on his line and then I'm going to move Leon Dreisaitl. But then he, he tweaked it even more. He said, I'm going to give him a, uh, he could have given Yamamoto to the McDavid line, but he said, I'm going to give him Yamamoto, the young upstart here. And then I'm also going to move Nugent Hopkins to left wing uh, because Nugent Hopkins is, a, he's a really well trained player. Like he, he doesn't make loops. His stops and starts are great. And because of that, he's always around the puck or he's around it more often than most forwards. So he could be the defensive conscience of the line from the left side, and, and that would allow Leon Dreisaitl to do what he does more. And so uh, it, it's almost like he took the best parts he could and he put them on the Dreisaitl line. Uh, Nugent Hopkins, who can score goals, has more confidence in his shot, uh, but is also defensively aware. Yamamoto, who, who loves to give and go, if you, if you give him the puck like Leon does, he gives it right back to him, and that's what those those big drivers of lines like to have happen Hall used to do it. McDavid does it. Dreisaitl does it. If I give you the puck, get it back. Uh, give it back right away, and you'll get it again. But let him let him be the horse, and he is. And so that line was sort of almost perfect the way it was set up. There was there was a player on 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 the line who could accomplish all of the needs of the line. Now with McDavid, as I said earlier, you know he can play. You know he, he's had chemistry with really different players since he arrived in the NHL. Like, like um, you know, he, he played well with Benoit Pouliot and then with Patrick Maroon. Uh, and, and, and he's also played well with Zach Cassian. You know, guys who are uber-skilled play well with, with McDavid. He can play with anybody. So they, they, you know, they decided, I think, to tweak the lines. They, they have Cassian who plays well with McDavid. And they were just going to try out a, lot, a bunch of players, and they ended up trading for two wingers and Athanasio and Ennis at the deadline, and we'll see how that goes. Hopefully there'll be a playoff and we'll see it. But I, I, my own opinion is this, that in today's NHL, it's more pairs up front than it is lines. So uh, Drysaddle and Yamamoto have real chemistry. They just do. 
And I think you might eventually see Nugent Hopkins move up to McDavid's line, and they'll look for another left winger. It might be Athanasiu. Uh, I, I think it needs to be a player who's more defensively aware, but we'll see. And then, and then the other possibility is if if they move uh, Yamamoto up to McDavid. Uh, the only issue I would have with that is that I don't know that the Oilers have a winger. Um, you know, if they if they have Nugent Hopkins with Drysaitel, I don't know that they have a defensively aware winger strong enough to play with McDavid and Yamamoto and all the work that would entail. So they might be one player short there, but but I I think they'll start the playoffs with that line. They were just too hot, but I wouldn't be surprised if they went away from it because that's the nature of coaching now is you want to have a, a pair that you can work with and then add in players as they get hot or not hot. And it, it, it usually applies to the center. So I think McDavid and, and Dreisaitl will eventually either Athanasio emerges or they're going to have to break up that line. Right. So obviously you can't get a better pair than McDavid and Dreisaitl. So it's interesting. It sounds like you're saying it's still kind of up in the air. Like we can't just go into next season, assuming it's going to stick with the lines that were at the end. So very interesting. And Cause I was going to ask you like McDavid, it's just so impressive that he was putting up this like nearly point per game at even strength when he was split up from Dreisaitl, even though he's playing with these guys who maybe you could argue would be like third liners on a lot of teams. And yeah, I'm curious to know what would happen if McDavid, like he's already shown to be such an amazing superstar in the league. I'd love to see what he can do if he has like a full season playing with a dry sidle or some other amazing player and you're saying hey maybe it'll happen at some point he's had like long stretches but he's never from what i recall played like a full season with an all-star yeah he's the 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 problem with mcdavid is um that that he can pull anybody up right so like like I was always amazed at Patrick Maroon because I, I had followed Maroon's career. He was, he was, you know, I mean, he's an AHL player really, uh, but he worked hard and he increased his speed a little bit. And when he got to the Oilers, you know, it, he figured out very quickly, all I have to do is protect McDavid and then keep my stick on the ice and, you know, get somewhere close to the front of the net. And either he's going to hit my stick or there's going to be a rebound and I can score 20 goals doing that every year. And, and like, I I think playing with McDavid is, is, is both really complicated and not at all complicated because once he gets into the offensive zone, then he's just looking for a target. And, and if you can be that guy and get open like Maroon did, then you're going to, you're going to have success. Um, But, but I also think that, that, you know, he is so uh, dominant that, that you can be made to look foolish playing with him too. If you don't, figure out what he needs from you. I'll, I'll use Yesa Pogliarvi as an example. Almost every time I saw McDavid play with Pogliarvi, even though numbers are good, Pogliarvi was, was often in the wrong spot. He'd, he'd end up being close to McDavid and he can't pass the puck two inches. And, and I think that we haven't seen yet who's going to come in and do that job. And I've always felt it was going to be Yamamoto. I'll be, t- I'll be honest with you. I always thought Yamamoto because he thinks the game really well. And you can see that with, with Leon that, that Yamamoto and he have that chemistry, but somebody's going to, you know, start their career on McDavid's line and just figure out what he needs because he doesn't need a lot. He just needs a target. Uh, and if he gives the puck to the player, then again, get it back really, really easily. But the other side of that is it's so easy for a coach to just plunk anybody there because, you know, he's, he's had Ty Ratty on his line 
Well, that, you know, no disrespect to Ty Ratty, but he was basically a borderline NHL player and he got a contract because he spent some time with, with McDavid. So, um, Never put a, a, anybody in a contract here on McDavid's line. That's a key because you'll just end up overpaying them in the summertime. But there's a player out there for McDavid. I don't, I don't know who it is. It might be this Raphael Lavoie kid. It might be the guy they draft this year, uh, in the first round. But whoever it is, uh, I, I hope that he has a little bit of a defensive conscience, not because McDavid isn't going to be a great two-way player eventually, but because a lot of a lot of what happens with McDavid on the ice is a really quick chance, and then the puck's going the other way. So uh, um, Cassie and God love him. Is a he's a fine player. He's got good speed and he's a good you know enforcer type. But I think they need that defensive conscience to be you know like Nuge would saying, "Oh God, what happens here?" Because when McDavid plays on the ice, everything is on full tilt and things happen so quickly. Um, the puck can be going the other way. Even if you play, you make a great play and it misses, the puck could be going the other way. So it's a, a double trouble with May David on the ice if the puck's going the wrong way because everybody's going in one direction. Yeah, it's so fun just to hear about some of these elite players in the league, like a McDavid or Dreisaitl, and hear like what they do to make themselves so special. I'd love to just talk about them the whole time, but I guess we should move on to other players in the lineup. You were just talking about Yamamoto maybe being that guy to eventually play with McDavid. Obviously, this year was a huge year for him. Like we've discussed, he came up, got right on the line with Dreisaitl and Ryan Nugent Hopkins, ended up producing at a point-per-game pace through the 27 games he played. He had 11 goals, 26 points in 27 games. There was even a stretch where McDavid was injured, and Yamamoto got on the top power play where he picked uh, two power play points in six games uh then that stretch ended uh he had an ankle injury then mcdavid came back and then he didn't get any power play time so now like next season going into yamamoto's age 22 season it sounds like you're saying he'll either be playing with dry or mcdavid or i guess ryan Nugent hopkins i guess i guess there's still some options there but like is what we saw from yamamoto for real like i guess i'm gonna be asking this to you about a lot of players but like such an amazing season he's still super young I guess on the other hand he did have a 25% shooting percentage so obviously that's something that would be hard to maintain I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on Yamamoto and if what we saw this season is a sign of things to come I think he's a really uh, fine young player the only things I worry about are injury and then you know he I think he had uh his five on five points per 60 was 3.25 or something I don't think he's going to spend his career in that stratosphere, right. but, but he, I, he, you know, to me, he could be, you know, over two, uh, would be, you know, definitely possible, uh, and, and probable based on the, the, the line mates he's probably playing with. Thing about Yamamoto is that he's really smart. He's, he's, um, he, he turns over pucks in good areas. He's a great four checker. He's small, but he uses that to his advantage. And, and he's, he's very aggressive and active. Um, you know, sometimes I, I when I watch him, he reminds me physically and and with anticipation of Jordan Eberle. But he's different than Eberle in that Eberle was was a more of a passive player. When when they were engaged with the puck, they would go forward. But defensively, he was he was more uh, more of a passive player. Uh, Yamamoto isn't that. He he's he is extremely aggressive when the other team has the puck, and that that's going to lead to a lot of goals no matter who he plays with because uh, he's a real pain in the ass that way. And you, you'd think, well, you know, they'll figure him out. But, you know, good forechecking, anticipation. Um, you mentioned the power play. His first power play goal this this year uh, with the Oilers was um, it was kind of on a broken play. Uh, 
Uh, Drysaddle had the puck. I'm going to say three or four different times in the same spot, right side, uh, uh, you know, to the right side of the net, above maybe not quite at the face-off circle, and he was looking for lanes and looking to pass. Finally, he shot the puck, and there was a big rebound, and I can't remember who the other winger was, but they had a shot at it. But Yamamoto, who had been trying to make himself available for passes through the entire sequence, he anticipated, he got the puck. It was an easy goal. And and I, I think that, you know, I think five-on-five, five, he won't be as impressive over an 82-game schedule but I think he will find his way onto the power play. And I'll say one other thing. I think he's a really good candidate for the penalty kill too. His anticipation and the way he turns over pucks and is aggressive is perfect for the penalty kill. Uh, uh, you don't want to wear him out, but I think he'd be really good there. Wow. Nice. So yeah, another great get for the Oilers. And like you say, if his points for 60 is going to fall to around two at even strength, it would obviously help for him to get on the top power play. Do you think that's a spot that he'll get a shot on as soon as next season? It looks like the guy who he would be bumping is Alex Chiasson, but of, of course, I guess his role is in front of the net. I don't know if that's the spot for Yamamoto. So do you see a, a way for Yamamoto to edge his way into that top power play? Cause that would be huge for him. I, I think I do. Uh, number one, they've been so successful. I don't know that it'll happen this year uh, during the playoffs because they've been so good at it. But the Oilers have a cap issue, and James Neal, Alex Chason are two of the guys that they might be able to alleviate it a little bit by trading them or, or buying out or whatever the case may be. The thing about Yamamoto is that I think gives him a little bit of an advantage moving forward is that he's right-handed. So there, there are all kinds of different looks that he would give them um, – on a power play that they don't have now. He could play uh, to the left of the net high. Eberle used to play it, where you, you're looking for a goal mouth rebound, just shove the puck in the net. Or he can play the, the spot that uh, Mark Letestu used to play, which would be high slot and, um, you know, anticipating a, a pass from Dreisaitl from the right side, which makes it easier to shoot. Remember that goal that Drysaddle scored where he got the puck from McDavid and he turned around and he shot it into the net. It was a, a brilliant play. If you have a right-handed player there on the power play, you don't need the guy to turn around. So there's two spots I can see Yamamoto playing in. And, you know, he's so gifted offensively. I, I think it's only a matter of time. I, I I don't know when it'll be, but as these these expensive veterans leave the team, I think he'll probably be likely to 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 pull, serve one of those roles over over maybe some of the other options he's very talented yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? It seems like they have four uh, elite or close to elite like forwards on the team right now in McDavid, Dreisaitl, Nugent Hopkins, and now Yamamoto. So it'd be nice to see them all on the top power play. And I guess Nugent Hopkins is the last one of this top four that I want to ask you about in terms of the forwards. He had a career-high point pace himself this season, and he, he won't be the last. I'll still get to another player who did. Uh, in his age 26 season, he put up 22 goals, 61 points in 65 games for a 77-point pace. Though, of course, it's like 77-point pace doesn't at all tell the story of his season it was basically like two completely separate seasons because he was actually on pace for one of his lower point totals ever through his first 32 games he only had 18 points it's only a 46 point 82 game pace he was primarily playing with Neil and Chase on so obviously not the best situation but then again like we discussed this change happens Yamamoto comes in Drysdale goes to the second line 
RNH goes to the left wing, and he started to produce at a bonkers pace. For the final 33 games of the season, Nugent Hopkins had 43 points for an 106-point pace. In fact, I checked for the rankings of players in terms of top scores since December 21st, and RNH ranked seventh in the whole league, only behind Panarin, Zibanejad, Kucherov, Pasternak, and Malkin. He was ahead of guys like Matthews and Patrick Kane and Nathan McKinnon. We just had this monster second half. So, like, did anything change in the way RNH plays to cause him to explode like he did, or was this just like a hundred percent due to the line shakeup? Well, I, I think two things. I think number one, um, three things actually. Number one, I think he did become, as a center, more likely to cheat for defense, and that happens uh, even with elite offensive players like like Nugent Hopkins. I think it does happen where you uh, you play. Uh, so defensively for so long you forget to cheat for offense a little bit and I think he did become that player I think it opened up for him when he moved to the left wing uh and and I'll be honest I I I don't know if it was the angle he was shooting from or he has worked on his shot or he just found uh, his aim I don't know but Ryan Nugent Hopkins um in the time that I've watched him I've watched him since he was a rookie he, he early in his career, he had this ability to set his sights and, and deliver a hard wrist shot to specific spots in the net. And he would score some unusual looking goals where even the goaltender was like, how did that go in? And then it didn't happen for a long time. And, and this past year, and I, I can't explain it. I wish I could. Maybe it's a shot was heavier. He was, he was masking the release. It was the left side. I don't know. I don't have that answer. But he was, he was beating goalies clean. And when I say beating goalies clean, I mean they, they just didn't react in time. And this is the NHL. These are all great goaltenders. And, and whatever it was, uh, he, he had an extra foot on his slap shot or his snap shot or his wrist shot, and it was just going in the net. He was, I, can, I can think of many, many goals. Uh, they scored, he scored a goal right off the faceoff early in the year, maybe against the Islanders, where Leon won the, the faceoff, and there was just a little bit of a screen, and Nuge shot the puck, and it, 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 I mean, it barely went in the net. It hit the post and went in, but he, he just rediscovered all the skills that he had, I think, when he entered the league, and he had an injury in his rookie season on his shoulder, and it was like, well, after that, it, it, a lot, some of his offensive ability and his shot went away and maybe he's rehabbed it to the point where it works again. I don't know, but he was a different player, but it was also reminding me of the player he was when he was much younger, where he had more confidence in his shot and he would use it. And if that continues, I mean, he's, he's in a contract year coming up. Uh, it could be dicey to sign him because with that shot, he could score 40 goals. Yeah, I mean, the, this pace he put up in the second half, this is like an all-star in the league that maybe people don't know about. I think in fantasy, I feel like people should be considering him as maybe someone who you might be able to get a, at a bit of a discount for maybe the last time because if he could stay the whole season with Dreisaitl, put up this like 100-point pace but over a whole season, this would be a totally different ballgame. But yeah, that wouldn't be good for the Oilers. Maybe they'll have to put him back with uh, James Neal and whoever to uh, lower that contract. <laughs> but hopefully they wouldn't make decisions like that. Yeah, after these four guys, there's obviously a 
pretty steep drop in terms of forwards and their offensive impacts this past season and like what we're going to expect. I'm curious to ask like if there's anyone else we should have on our radars in hopes of a breakout next year. Like one guy that seemed like a decent bet for at least one day was pending restricted free agent Andreas Athanasiu, who the Oilers acquired at the deadline for Sam Gagne, who throughout the season I kept on having to remind myself, oh wow, he's still in the league. Good for him. But uh, yeah, so they traded Gagne and a couple of second round picks to get Athanasiu and he had shown glimpses of promise in Detroit. He was actually coming off a really strong 2018-19 season where he put up 30 goals and 54 points. Uh, Then he struggled with the wings this year. He had only 24 points in 46 games and had that laughable minus 45 plus minus. Uh, But, you know, the wings were the worst team in the league. So it seemed like a fresh start would do him some good. And, you know, one game in, things were looking good because Athanasiu jumped right to the top line with McDavid and he had a goal and an assist in his first game as an Oiler versus the Ducks. But after that, he like quickly got dropped to the bottom six. His ice time was slashed. He like pretty much disappeared Appeared. So I'm curious, do you know like what happened with Athanasiu to cause him to lose favor so quickly? Well, I think there was a couple of things. I think number one, um, that first game he scored a nice goal. He had an assist. It was a really the assist was actually nicer than the goal. Uh, but the you know he played well, and then he got nicked up. He 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 didn't um, he didn't finish that game. And then for about the next five games or so. He seemed to be that he played. He seemed to be not quite right. And then the last two or three games, he he was not on the McDavid line. He was playing on a depth line. But he really started to show what he can do. And he's a big man with great speed, and there's a lot that he can accomplish, even if he's not with a a terrific center. But but, um, my feeling was at that time that if the season had gone on, we would probably be watching him back on the top line. So from that point of view... I think we're we're looking at a guy who's going to get right back into a feature role. And, you know, he's an important player for the Oilers because for two reasons. Number one, they gave up a lot for him, two draft picks, and they're still a building team. But then the other thing is they have to sign him. He's a free agent, a restricted free agent with Arbright's this summer. So, you know, at this point in his career, you would probably be looking at getting a, a, a multi-year contract. He scored 30 goals. Uh, you know, two years ago, he struggled and got himself traded this year. But that's one thing I'll be looking for in the playoffs. You'd like to see and you'd like to believe and you'd like to, to watch him have a good playoff. And then you'd be a little more secure in signing him long term. If not, they're going to have to go short term with him. And it could cost them a bundle if he turns out to be a valuable player. And he could be. He's very talented. Um, you know, he, he's 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 not as as strong without the puck as you'd like him to be, but he's, he can score goals. He scored 30 in the league and that's hard to do. So for me, he is a real key player. Yeah, it's very interesting. So maybe he's a bit of a sleeper. I didn't consider the possibility that maybe he was a little bit injured and that's why he had the demotion. I just thought maybe he was in the doghouse. But if you're saying that he might get back on the top line with McDavid, then yeah, I almost wonder if there's no playoffs and then we could just go and fresh for next season and fantasy-wise. He'll be someone that's off of people's radars and could end up being a huge get. But obviously it'll be very interesting for the Oilers and useful to see what he can do in this playoff series, which will be against the Chicago Blackhawks, I believe, if it happens. Uh, How do you like the Oilers' chances against the Blackhawks? Well, I, I keep reading, you know, people saying that, that well, the, the, the Blackhawks could beat Edmonton. And I looked, anything can happen. It's a, it's a short series. But yeah. um, Chicago has uh, some real offensive talent up front. They've got, they've got, depending upon how they deploy their talent, they have two or three lines that you've got to worry about. And they're going to score goals. And, and their goaltending is, is 
better than Edmonton's. So uh, you, you, you know, you have to respect that. The problem with all of that is the owners have two elite lines and special teams are lights out. If those things continue, uh, th- that's a big advantage for them. Now, Chicago's defense is really the issue. Uh, the, the, the owners with McDavid and the dry sidle line should be able to, to really make hay even at five on five. And they're, they're not a fast defensive group. They traded um, Gustafson to Calgary at the deadline. He was a good defenseman. That could be the issue. I think Chicago will score goals, but I think they're going to get scored on. I, I, I think it'll be a high, high, high scoring series. Sounds like it would be very entertaining to watch then. And yeah, you, you've got to think Edmonton. I mean, they were ahead of them in the regular season standings for a reason. And now also Chicago doesn't have Robin Leonard anymore because I, I don't think they were planning on being in the playoffs. So yeah, that'll be fun to watch for sure. Uh, so wait, I was talking about Athanasiu. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask you about if there's any other forward. I guess you're saying Athanasiu is someone definitely to watch. Is there anyone else that you think might be a diamond in the rough? Like I know this season, you know, there were guys that we've talked about like Zach Cassian, James Neal, Alex Chason, uh, Josh Archibald got stretches on the top line. Are any of these guys, or is there any other forward that we should be looking to be expecting a breakout sometime the next season or two? I'll tell you, I'll give you three names and... Uh... Uh, breakout like offensive breakout i don't know but but they're they're holland has hired some really interesting hockey players uh one is a guy named Joachim Nigard, and he's very fast i don't know that he has enough hands to score you know 20 goals in the nhl but he's a very fast guy and i think he's a, a player who's intriguing enough that he pr- might get some time on a feature line from time to time cool. and he got hurt this year which wasn't great but there's something about him as a player that that is intriguing, um, and he's signed for next year. The other one is is Gaten Haas, who I don't think would spend a lot of time on a skill line, but he does several things that are valuable to a team. He draws a lot of penalties, as I mentioned before. I mean, a lot of them, and and he didn't have uh, the quickness uh, this year to cash a lot of goals, but he had chances. And sometimes with a player who's new to the league, he can turn those chances into goals in his second year. So I'm not saying he'll be 20, but he might get 10 and he had five this year. And, and, you know, he, he might end up being more, more prominent than people maybe think he is. The other player that, that from this roster that I, that I do wonder about for the stretch run uh, or, or for the playoffs is Tyler Ennis. Um, he's 30. He's had some injury issues, but he's healthy and he's skating pretty well. And I, I don't like, I don't think he's going to be in the NHL when he's 36. So we're, we're, you know, we can see the, the, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel here of his career, but as a, as a short term stopgap to sign for one year, um, as insurance against maybe Athanasio or whatever else, I can see that. And it, it would be more likely to happen if he has a strong playoff. Right. Okay. So those are three interesting names to follow. Ennis, I believe, was on that top line with Athanasio and McDavid for that first game after they arrived. And we thought, oh, that was a cool situation for them to land and going from Detroit and Ottawa to being on a line with Connor McDavid. So we'll see if that could happen again in the playoffs. Actually, there is one more forward that I wanted to get your thoughts on since we haven't mentioned him, but you did bring him up before when talking about how great McDavid was and how this guy, Jesse Pugliarvi, was never in the right spot. Yeah, he was never able to impress with the Oilers. And he ended up spending last season with Carpat in SM Liga. And it looks like 
like from the stats, he had a good season, 53 points in 56 games. I obviously don't know much about the context of that league, but do you, are there any updates on what the plan is with Puliarvi moving forward? Like, is there a chance he'll come back to the Oilers? I know there's been a lot of drama there, but like, should we assume he'll just get traded or do you think there's a chance he could come back? It's 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 um it's interesting. I'll say that uh, he was quoted in a Finnish newspaper saying "never say never," which everybody assumes means he would come back. I I'll be honest. I don't see him playing on a line with McDavid or Drysaitel, and and it's it goes to why Yamamoto has had a lot of success in terms of of physical tools. Yamamoto brings less to a a, a line potentially than Polyarvi, but he processes the game at a really high rate. Yamamoto does. Polyarvi, it's, it's, uh, um, I, I think once he gets comfortable in the league, it'll be easier for him. But, uh, you know, he came up, uh, he played a sport called bandy and it's a, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's this, it's basically like an acre of ice and you've got to play defense and offense and you don't even have a real stick. It's a, a weird looking thing that's sort of a stick, but not really. And, you know, Pogliarvi is actually a really good defensive player positionally, but offensively, uh, he, he doesn't, you know, he's, he, because of the difference of the ice surface and the size, I don't think he processes where McDavid and Drysaddle are going or what they're looking at. And I think that's a, a disadvantage. So I think two years into his career, when he's set and settled, he might be an option. But I, I, if he comes back to the team, I think he would probably be on a, on a third line. Uh, and I think he'd be really good at it. I think it'd be a, I, I really like him as a two-way winger. Um, and, and once he's established in the league, I think offensively he would probably start to come. But he, it, he's, he's not um, – He's not going to be one of the top offensive options in Edmonton. And I think that's probably going to make him unhappy. Ideally, in all honesty, ideally, I think the Oilers trade him. Um, only, I only say this because he's like the last remnant, hopefully, of that group of players that maybe started with Sam Gagne, uh, where the Oilers were just pushing them into the league too quickly. And, uh, you know, some of those players were able to make it work. Hall, Nugent Hopkins, McDavid, of course, but but many of them were not. And and you know, Pugliarvi is is a gigantic man. He skates really well. Uh, he he's not naturally mean, but he's big, and just getting in the way is enough. Uh, I think with a uh, with a good coach, I think Tippett could really help him. Uh, but I don't think Tippett would put him in a feature role. That's just my opinion. I think he'd be a two-way checker, penalty killer, at least for the first two years. And that's no disrespect for him. to him. I just still, still think there are parts of the game in the NHL that are so different for him uh, that they won't come naturally to them, to him, and he's going to have to play maybe a lesser role for, for 82 to uh, 150 games. Right. And that makes sense. And so he could be a viable piece on the Oilers in this like depth role. But like you said, maybe he wouldn't be interested. So maybe they will just have to trade him. Hey, they should uh, talk to their potential playoff rival, the Chicago Blackhawks. They like taking chances on these players who haven't had a good start to their careers, like Dylan Strom and Alex Nylander. Maybe they could take a, a shot on Pugliarvi as well. So that'll be really fun to watch. I also wonder if like it's better to trade him now rather than play him on the third line. And then maybe you don't get as much for him as maybe now there's still a lot of hype. 
uh, yeah, that's that's a really fascinating situation. I'm really curious to see how that's going to play out. Uh, I guess we should switch over to defense now. And this, I promised another player that put up a career-high point pace. And that player is Oscar Clefbaum, who had a great year. He finally broke a 40-point pace. He had 34 points in 62 games. a 45-point, 82-game pace. Uh, this was helped by him seeing a ton of power play time this year. He saw 81.7% of the team's power play time. And he produced there for pretty much the first time. He had 18 power play points on the season. He also saw a bump in his overall ice time, around 25 and a half minutes per game, which led the team. Uh, so at this point, is Oscar Clefbaum, like, he must be seen as like the overall leader in terms of the defenseman on the team. And like, did something change between last season and this season for him to get this increased role? Or is it just Dave Tippett really likes him maybe more than Hitchcock did? No, I think it's health. Uh, with with Kleppbaum, right. it's always, you know, is he healthy? Uh, he he's he's the best defenseman on the team, and it's been like that for some time now. Uh, Kleppbaum is is as close as the Oilers have had in many years, I guess since Bronger, to a complete defenseman. He can play in any discipline: penalty kill, power play, um, uh, even strength. He has, you know, he's he's not a, a vicious player. But he can play physical. Uh, he can take a hit to make a play. He's a wonderful passer. He can transport the puck, and he has a bomb for a shot. So th- there's there's not a um, there's not a huge deficit anywhere in his game, and and I, and I think that that um, because he's been hurt, uh, and then also because at times his partner, whether it be Adam Larson or Justin Schultz or whomever, um, has struggled. Clapbaum's sort of a well-kept secret, but if you watch his game, he, there's a lot of maturity in his game. He, he's a uh, he's a smart player. Um, he's he's a player that the coach would trust any any time, and and I think he figures things out. I think I think he was at one time less confident on the power play, less likely to make a a, a pass that that had some risk to it. Now he just whips it around. I think I think. You know, maybe the confidence has come with the power play being so good, but uh, he's always been good. It's just that he's not always been healthy. Yeah, I recall him being a kind of a frustrating guy in fantasy because you'd draft him and he would kind of get on a roll, then he'd get hurt. And then when he'd come back, it would take him a while to get going. Maybe he wouldn't even, I remember there was that stretch where Darnell Nurse took the top power play job from him yeah. after he came back from injury. But at this point, can we assume this is Clefbaum's job? And maybe like maybe in the future, like I don't know if Evan Bouchard is going to pose a threat, but for the next, like let's say, couple seasons, should we assume it's Clefbaum on the top power play as long as he's healthy? Oh, sure. I, I, think, yeah, I think he's substantially better at, the, at it than Darnell Nurse. I like Darnell Nurse as a defenseman, but but the finesse side of it, Clefbaum has has won that going away. So if he's healthy, Clefbaum will play the power play. I don't have much doubt about that. He's he's just um, he's a better passer. Um, he has a, a great shot that hits the net, and and I think that that he's uh, he's grown into the role. You mentioned about his increase in point. I think he's more patient. He looks around. He doesn't he doesn't just hammer it. You know. Uh, and, and because of that, there are more opportunities for, for the, the power play because he's, he's not ending the play by shooting it into the crest of the goaltender or, or, you know, taking a low percentage shot. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's driving it and, and you can tell when players are maturing on the power play because a defenseman like Clefbaum, he has the option. He probably touches the puck every sequence. 
and he has the option to fire it, but it's a low percentage shot unless there's one or more player in front of the net. Clefbaum passes down low a lot and, and to McDavid or to Dreisaitl. And because of that, I think it, it makes the, it's one of the reasons why the Oilers power play is so efficient. Yeah, and I almost wonder, like, as good of a season as Clefbaum had, and like I said, 18 power play points, 45-point pace. But, you know, it's kind of like, I wonder if there's more upside there. Because, like you say, the power play is so good now. Like, McDavid and Dreisaitl had 43 and 44 power play points, respectively, while Clefbaum only had 18. So is it possible that he could improve his percentage of points that he gets on the power play relative to the number of goals that are scored? And, and like... Uh, potentially challenge for being like a 50 to 60 point guy? Or is that just kind of not how the power play in Edmonton works? Because it's structured in a way where Clefbaum's not going to get in on the majority of the goals. No, I think, I think he's, you know, if you watch the Oilers power play, it's, it, and again, I get back to the coaching. It's, it's morphing in a good way. And, and Clefbaum is one of the, one of the, like, if you count the number of touches he has on the power play, it, it's almost like a triangle from the back. Clefbaum is, is often in the center of the, 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 the blue line, like right in the center, uh, moving back and forth. And then he'll pass it to McDavid on the left side or Drysaddle on the right or vice versa. But it, it's like they're a, they're a triangle about to attack the middle of the ice in front of the net. So he, he's, I, I really would ever he- hesitate to ever call him a, a like a power play quarterback on a on a power play with McDavid and Drysaddle, but in a way he is. He's part of that backfield that that is making a decision about how to attack, and and his instincts really got better this year because he was healthy and because they had I think they had more freedom or, or they were attacking it in a different way. So. I would suggest that he has a. I, who knows? He, Evan Bouchard could take the job, and and you know you'll never hear Clefbaum in the power play again. But they're they're different handedness too, uh, and chances are it'll take Bouchard at least a year on the second power play to to build up. So for the foreseeable future, I think Clefbaum's a really good bet there. Yeah, I wonder if like both Clefbaum and Ryan Nugent Hopkins both just had career years. And I feel like both of them have potential to do even better. Just when you look down at like, you know, with Nugent Hopkins, it was he had that really slow start. And then Clefbaum, I just feel like there's got to be some more power play points up for grabs. So I wonder what we'll see next year. But okay, we brought up Evan Bouchard. So I'm very curious to hear what the current take from yourself and the organization is on this guy. He was the 2018 10th overall pick. He had that fantastic career as the captain of the London Knights in the OHL, even got a shot with the Oilers for seven games in 2018-19 but this past season the 20 year old played a full season with Bakersfield in the AHL and he put up a solid 36 points in 54 games which led all of their defensemen in points by a significant margin so what's the current take on Evan Bouchard should we expect him to have a good chance to make the team out of camp next season I think he has a chance Um, I think he's ready I think any other coach GM combination in Oiler history would have brought him up this past year, right. but he improved a lot at five on five in the first half of the year in Bakersfield. He was minus 10. I think it was 21 goals for and 31 against while he was on the ice at even strength. So minus 10 goal differential in the second half, he was even on a terrible team. So he was like 21 and 21 in the second half. So he improved. He made better decisions. He was he was uh, better in coverage. He was there was more uh, urgency to his game when he was trying to get back, grab the puck, and send it to a good area. So uh, I think that did a lot of good. Now the owners have to make a decision. This gets back to the cap. Uh, is Matt Benning on the team? He made 1.9 a year ago. 
probably a lot to pay for a third pairing guy if you have to give him a raise and you've got Bouchard in the in the minors making 800,000 NHL dollars you can save over a million just making that move so I I think Bouchard makes the team uh I think that he probably plays some power play in year one but I think beginning in year two is when he's going to be a player who, who moves the needle offensively for them Right. So maybe he'll need a year just to get adjusted to the league, get adjusted to the system for the Oilers. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like they're going to be developing him the right way. And you're saying that maybe beforehand they wouldn't have done that. Uh, Another guy that you said had a surprising year compared to maybe what people expected was Ethan Bear, who this year, like this guy is a guy who was picked 124th overall back in 2015. So clearly not high on anyone's radars, but he actually ranked third on the team among defensemen in ice time, playing almost 22 minutes per game. So he was behind only Clefbaum and Nurse. Uh, only 21 points in 71 games. But uh, patron Shane wanted me to ask you, uh, do you think that uh, Bear has a potential ceiling that's above what we saw this year? Or do you think like what we saw this year was kind of the best we can expect and that's we should hope just for this to continue moving forward? Let me tell you something about Ethan Bear. Uh, he, he was drafted in 2015 in the fourth round. And then he had two really good WHL seasons to end his junior career. And, and he came out of uh, junior went to the AHL and and played well enough to get a recall as a a rookie defenseman in pro hockey, which is unusual. And he played pretty well. And then in year two, he played well again, but in the off season after year two, and, and he has talked about this, he, he, he didn't go anywhere. He he basically uh, stayed in Edmonton. I think he took a, a brief holiday, but he worked out every day and he basically chiseled his body. He, he worked on his foot speed. He worked on his endurance. He worked on his decision-making. He worked on himself. And when he came to camp in, in the fall, remember now, they had Bouchard, they had Caleb Jones, they had Joel Pearson, who, who had been signed uh, out of Sweden. They had a lot of different options. But Bear, he, he actually physically looked like a different person. And, and he was, you know, he was so much better. He's always been a great passer. He's always had a really good shot, but he was more mobile and, and he was able to handle the, the size and the physicality of opponent forwards better than he had. Now, all of those things are, are things that he improved personally. And now he's got a year's experience. So you worry about injury uh, because, you know, he played a lot. But but he, he was pretty durable during the year. And then you worry that he can sustain that because, you know, sometimes there's a, you know, defensemen don't develop in a straight line. Sometimes there's a, a setback and then you have to, you know, move forward afterwards. But right now, he's one of the most encouraging defensemen, I'd say, since Jeff Petrie uh, mm-hmm. on the right side. Uh, he, he, he is... He, again, a little bit like Clefbaum in that he has a range of skills and, and you know, I don't think he'll be a power play producer because Bouchard is coming up so closely after him, but he's a guy who plays like in, in you know, he played, t- he played more tough minutes as a percentage of overall five on five minutes than any defenseman on the orders as a rookie. So he's, he's, he's a really big addition, maybe somewhat overlooked because of the position he plays. It's not like he was scoring at a at Yamamoto's rate, but he's a, a very fine player. And I'm of the belief that, you know, he's going to play top four for a decade if he can play anywhere near 
the level and stay healthy because uh, he was he was splendid this year. He really was. Well, that's great. And yeah, the Oilers, you know, we've talked about them over the past few years as maybe not being the strongest team defensively. So it's obviously great for them that they had Ethan Bear have this strong season. And another spot where the Oilers have not generally been known to be so strong is in Nets. Last year, they were ranked 27th in the league with an 896 save percentage. But this year, I think a big part of the reason for the Oilers' improvement, like you said at the top, was the play of their goaltenders. Miko Koskinen had a much better season than he did the year before. In fact, like Miko Koskinen is very interesting because you were talking about the Oilers' cap troubles, and I remember really being surprised when Peter Shirelli gave him that three-year, $4.5 million per year extension after he had that strong start coming out of the KHL. And then like right after that extension got signed, he started to fall off and was like a 900-save percentage goalie for the second half of the 2018-19 season but this season uh, Miko Koskinen was really solid he put up a 917 save percentage in the 38 games he played now Mike Smith is uh, unrestricted free agent again going into next season so like what do you think the plan is with Koskinen like, like are we at a point now where we can be confident that he's a solid goalie and maybe he could be a number one goalie moving forward or do you think the Oilers are going to try to bring in another guy like a Mike Smith to share time because they don't want to trust Koskinen as the undisputed starter I think they had so much success with the dual system this year yeah. that, that it's not really a reflection of Koskinen, but they'll try to duplicate that. Um, I'll, I'll t- I, I did not think Smith was a brilliant bet when they signed him, and I don't think he's a brilliant bet now. The problem with me saying that is if you watch the orders this season, Smith was a big story. I mean, he, he played – there were games that he flat out won. Like he just won the game for them. and. You know, I, I think that sometimes a coach and a general manager will will go with the player that got them to where they were. And I think in the case of, of the Oilers and Mike Smith, I, I think there's another contract coming. Now, I don't think it's necessarily advisable. Uh, Smith's had a fine career, but he's, he's, you know, edging closer to 40. I think Koskinen is clearly the superior goaltender. It's my belief that, that if they sign him, Koskinen's probably going to play 50 games anyway, mm-hmm. uh, just because he'll, he, like he outplayed Mike. If you look at the stats, he outplayed Mike Smith by a substantial margin. But I'm not sure who's going to start game one of the playoffs. And if I had to guess, I would say it would be Mike Smith. So there, there, you know, there's going to have to be more um, erosion of Mike Smith's game, I think, for uh, Dave Tippett to lose belief in him. And, and that's you know that's understandable if you look at their careers together. They've they've been together in Dallas and then Arizona and now Edmonton. So there's a there's a real belief in the player by the coach and vice versa. So they've been to war together. But I I, I you know if you're an Oilers fan or if you're you're looking to to play fantasy hockey off the Oilers, I would go at Koskinen because I think no matter what they do, they're on a collision course with a Mike Smith contract and. I just think Smith is in that area of age and usage by veteran goalies where when it all comes unglued, it'll be in a hurry. Yeah, so hopefully at least if he signs, it'll just be a one-year deal. And like you said, maybe Koskinen plays 50 games anyways, and maybe a $1 to $2 million Mike Smith as a backup works out okay for one more year. I'm curious to know, like, what 
kind of changed with Koskinen because he did kind of stink at the end of last year, though I guess you could blame that maybe on the Oilers as a team overall. And this year, he really improved and seemed like a, a solid option. Do you think this is something we could just chalk up to goalie randomness and he's like the same goalie as he was before and maybe he had bad luck then and better luck now? Or did you see him making any improvements in his game after having that first year of experience in North America? I just think they played the hell out of him uh, in that one, in that first year. Right. They they played him too much. They had him in a tandem. He played in the Russian league, but the I don't think the Russian league is you know their their, their schedule isn't as intense during the year as the NHL. And I, I think he wore out this year. He had more rest, and he was you know uh, Koskinen had a, a a really good year, and and I think it's because Smith was so spectacular or so not spectacular. Uh, Koskinen maybe didn't get the headlines as much, but, but he played, he was rested when he played, uh, Tippett did a really good job of making sure he wasn't overworked and, and the, the owners benefited from that. He had a really fine season. I don't know what, what value you'd put on it. And I don't think he's a $4.5 million goaltender, but there was talk of buying him out a year ago. Uh, I haven't heard anybody talk about buying him out. He, He looks like a guy who can handle a load. Yeah, he definitely exceeded my expectations. I was skeptical about him going into this season as well. Uh, really quickly, uh, patron William wanted me to ask you about another goalie, Ilya Konovalov. I haven't heard of him. He's a 21-year-old goalie the Oilers drafted in the third round last year. Just put up a 9-12 save percentage in the KHL with Lokomotive Yaroslavl. Uh, is he someone that the Oilers are looking at as a future starter on the team one day? Like maybe when Koskinen's contract is over? Or is there like a bunch of goalies and he's just one of the names that could you know do something? I think he's a player. Of, I, they've got two goalies that are really interesting. One is Olivier Rodrigue, who had a, a really strong final year in the Quebec Major Junior League. He'll play pro this coming year, whether it's in the ECHL or in Bakersfield. We don't know yet, but uh, he's a guy to keep track of. But the thing about Konovalov, they drafted him. Uh, Ken Holland drafted him. So, number one, he's a general manager. He probably views him differently than every other goalie in the system because he's his guy. Uh, but he had a, you know, they drafted him. Coming off a, a stunningly good year in the KHL, he had a, I think a 9.31 save percentage, and he was 20 years old, and that would have been the last chance to sign him. And I think he would have gotten some real free agent interest uh, if if they hadn't drafted him. Now his contract runs out at the end of this coming year, in the summer of what well, well, we hope is the summer of 2021. So that would be the time if they're going to go get him. That'll be when. So I think he is the guy that they're, they may be looking at to replace Mike Smith a year from now. Oh, cool. Okay, so William, there you go. Definitely a good eye to catch Konovalov there. Alan, thank you so much for giving me all of this time. This has been so fun talking to the Oilers. The time has just flown by. Uh, one final question that we ask to all the beat writers who are so kind to come on the show. If you could pick one Oiler that you expect to be the biggest positive surprise next year, so someone who maybe might not be someone that people are expecting to do too much and then they'll exceed expectations, and then on the other hand, could you pick one Oiler that you think will be the biggest disappointment that maybe people are too high on and then he's going to disappoint? Oh, gee, these are really good questions. Um I, I think, uh, you know, uh, for, for the, uh, from the positive side, uh, I'm going to pick uh, uh, Caleb Jones. Uh, he's a young, mobile defenseman who really, I, I don't even know if he has a, uh, a job right now on the, on the roster because of Chris Russell, but he's a guy that, that is uh, maybe a little under the radar unless you've watched the orders. Uh He came up and he's got great speed. He can pass the puck. 
Uh, he's physical. He's not a big player, but he, he's you know got a little edge to his game. And and I think he's a player that that uh, in a year from now will have maybe closer to the value that Ethan Bear has now. You know, I, I think he'll be a, people will be talking about another very fine young defenseman uh, coming up for the Oilers, and I think that's that's. Um, that's the guy I pick. Now on the downside, uh, that's tough because everybody's had a really good uh, year. Uh, I'll pick, and this is unfair, but he, he got a nice contract towards the end of the year. I'll pick Zach Cassian, not because he's a, a poor player, but because I think his, you know, with his skill set and his ability to score goals, I think it will be difficult for him to cover that bet, that that salary cap uh, investment bet. I know why they did it. Uh, they had traded away so much talent from Drake Kajula and others on the wings. They wanted to, you know, get a guy and keep him. I get that, uh, but they paid dearly, and of course, the COVID nineteen changed everything. So good for Cassian for getting that dollar. But I think it'll be difficult as we go through the summertime. It'll be difficult seeing all these other contracts signed uh, for, for for Cassian to a year from now justify those dollars it'll be too bad because he's a very you know he's i love his story and his redemption i just i it's fabulous but that's my pick yeah i think that's fair well like you said before uh you maybe don't want to pay someone based off of numbers they're putting up with mcdavid because so many players have been able to produce there so we'll see if cassian gets if he continues to play with mcdavid then it'll look like a good contract probably but if he goes to the bottom six then probably not so much uh, so Alan Mitchell, Low Tide, thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course, you're a contributor at The Athletic. You're the host of Low Down with Low Tide on TSN 1260 in Edmonton. Uh, you have that Low Tide blog. I just want to make sure, is there anything else you want people to check out? I'll link to all the stuff in the show notes. Was there anything in particular you want people to check out? No, that's that's uh, that's all of them. And uh, I want to thank you. very. I enjoyed this very much. I enjoyed our chat very much. Awesome. Thanks so much. So did I. Uh, I'm curious, actually, like Low Tide, this nickname, uh, maybe other people know, but I, I don't know. Like, wh- where did it come from? I'm, my best guess was named after 2020 Hall of Fame inductee Kevin Lowe. Is that where it comes from? Sort of. Um, it's it's uh, when I was uh, I discovered HF Boards, the, the fan site, when it was brand new, basically. And I used my real name and I had a guy named Red Twilight saying, nobody here uses their real name. You've got to pick a, they called it a Nick, like a nickname. So I wanted to call, I wanted my nickname to be Horkoff and Die. Uh, <laughs> but my wife didn't think that was very nice. So uh, I, it's, it's, it's homage to Kevin Lowe. Uh, the original nickname Low Tide is Ron Lowe, the goalie for the Oilers. That's his nickname. So I stole, and I did apologize to him uh, for stealing his nickname. Um, because I didn't think the blog would last this long. So it's low tide, the, the, the goalie, I stole his nickname and I put an E in the middle of there, uh, as homage to Kevin Lowe. So that's, that's how it came out. Interesting. Well, hey, if we had more time, I'd love to debate with you if Daniel Alfredson should be getting in the Hall of Fame instead of Kevin <laughs> Lowe, because I grew up a Sense fan. But you've given me so much of your time. Very generous. Thank you so much. I had a great time. And I think people are really going to love this show. So thanks again. Well, thanks very much for having me. Thanks so much again to Alan Mitchell, a.k.a. Low Tide, for this 
fascinating interview about the Edmonton Oilers. I really enjoyed it. Lots of interesting nuggets here. I think this is one of the ones where I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to afterwards because there were a lot of interesting names brought up and great insights. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again. Also, thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in and joining us on this ride through all 31 teams as we've been doing this beat writer series i can't believe we're uh, starting to see the end of this journey this after this interview that's 19 teams in only 12 to go i've already got a couple more scheduled which we'll be releasing as soon as we get them and yeah i hope that you've been enjoying it i've been having a blast myself talking to all these smart people uh would love to hear your feedback tweet at us at keeping carlson with any thoughts you may want to share also uh we still do have our patreon program as i mentioned all the time just a dollar during the summer to get all of the perks that we provide including we're having a patron cast this coming wednesday it's always a really fun show where brian and i get together we do a live broadcast where we answer any questions that the patron throw at us and also like let loose just talk about our lives it's a good time so you can always check it out again for a dollar come join us for the patron cast also join our patron only facebook group uh keepingcarlson.com slash patron for all of that information I will also take a five-star review on iTunes. But okay, enough of me asking for things. How about let's cue the outro music and I will read you the credits and then we can all get out of here. So this episode of Keeping Carlson was presented by Dauber Hawking and supported by our patrons. Logos by Brandon Weeb. Outro music by Pat Roach. And the episode was researched with help from Dauber Hockey's Frozen Tools, Dauber Prospects, Natural Stature, Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly, Charting Hockey, HockeyGoalies.org, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Roto World, and, of course, the athletic and the great mind of Alan Mitchell, a.k.a. Low Tide. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. We'll be back at you with another interview, I think, pretty soon. So stay tuned. Make sure you're subscribed. And until the next one, keep on keeping Carl Sand.